Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a local school committee member is under fire for her transphobic TikTok posts. Plus, is the state's child welfare system putting LGBTQ youth at risk? And Representative Liz Cheney admits she was wrong to oppose gay marriage. We kick off LGBTQ History Month with our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, from the early days of cinema, African Americans found it hard to escape the film world's on-screen dehumanizing stereotypes. In a meticulously researched new book, author Will Haygood traces the complicated history of Black Americans' portrayals in film. Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World, is Haygood's ninth book, and it's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me now, Grace Sterling Stoll, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Welcome, Grace. Hi, Callie. Happy to be here today. Glad to have you. Jansen Wu, Executive Director of GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hi, Jansen. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. And Sue O'Connell, political commentator at New England Cable News and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello, Sue. Happy fall, Callie. Yes, happy fall indeed. Let's start right off with the local school committee in Bourne, Massachusetts. She's under fire now, and various people are calling for her resignation after posting controversial videos and memes on TikTok. Here's a clip from NBC 10 Boston newscast about Bourne School Committee member Carrie McRae. This is Bourne School Committee member Carrie McRae talking about her controversial views on TikTok. I refuse to use them and they. The videos and memes about race and gender are no longer publicly available, but many say the damage has already been done. I was horrified. Alexandra Caldwell is a teacher in the district who is a member of the LGBTQ community. She's also a parent to a nine-year-old boy who's transgender. We are interested in the well-being of our children. Even if she does resign, even if we are able to get her out, that damage has been done. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this happening, Sue. Why is it important that this become, well, public, actually? Well, I mean, she's a she's a public official, right? She's elected to the board. She's in charge of making sure our children uh, know that they are in a safe and welcoming environment uh, every day, but especially right now as we battle this pandemic. And, you know, what she said wasn't just controversial. It was just hateful, rude. Uh, mean and and harmful, and um, you know the, the voters of uh, of that district need to understand that. And I I I salute the way the school district and other officials are pushing back and making sure that they are taking extra efforts 
to make sure she uh, hopefully is not representative of the board, the board at large. But, um, you know, this is just shocking. It's shocking anywhere. It's shocking here in Massachusetts. And it's a reminder that, um, you know, even with all the best intentions and best plans, there are still people who end up in positions of authority, uh, caring for our children who are not qualified to do so. And I would remind people everywhere, you know, to pay attention, even if you don't have children, uh, to the races for your town, your town board meetings, for your school committees, because these elected positions, it, you can't just fire them. That's exactly the point that has, was made by uh, the, uh, the, the head of the board there. So yeah, we need to pay close attention to all of these. So Grace, um, according to the article from NBC Boston, she apologized during an executive session. Now, as Sue has said, She's a public official. This is a public meeting. She did not apologize publicly, to my knowledge. Does that make a difference? Well, I think that you know, as, as Sue mentioned, yeah, the damage is the the damage has been done. I mean, young people have heard this. I think of the the impact as always on young young trans people and and youth of color who have who have either seen or heard about her remarks and and apologizing. It feels like apologizing for what? Apologizing that she got caught or apologizing because she genuinely recognizes that what she does, what she said was hurtful. And so it's not enough. And, and she's an elected official and, and there should be greater accountability. Jansen, I'll have you weigh in. And just to pick up something that Sue pointed out and others in the piece pointed out that uh, the committee members are added or removed by voters. So it would have to be a special recall election. You know, the calls for resignation do not work. Uh, unless she is, um, well, it doesn't work and she has to be recalled. No, I, I certainly hope that the voters uh, make the right decision here to choose somebody who is more qualified to serve. I also want to broaden the conversation uh, because, you know, I think it's easy for people to kind of see this as within the lens of identity politics. But what this is really about is all children having equal educational opportunities. And when you, your identity, who you are is not being recognized by school leadership, you do not have the same educational opportunities as other students. And so that's that's what this is really about. Hmm. That is a good point. All right, moving on to another point, something that uh, your group is looking at quite closely and has been for some time, and that's the the situation for LGBTQ youth in the child welfare system. So I'm looking at a report, and there is a lot of just general misgendered situations from transgender young people who are moving from foster home to foster home, according to your report. The comprehensive agency policy does not exist. There is a lack of affirming placements and inadequate training for staff and foster families. And in fact, if you go on in the report, what I found interesting was that uh, some parents were saying, we had to teach the the people who are supposed to be expert in handling the system, how, in fact, to interact with our young people. So it's a crisis situation. This is something, as I said, has you've been complaining about for some time or pointing out. What's the status now, Jansen? Well, unfortunately, we reached a point where, you know, we need some public accountability in order to protect what are the most vulnerable youth, you know, in, in, in the Commonwealth, um, which are the youth who are in DCS care. Um, you know, one transgender young person was quoted in the report describing being repeatedly misgendered. He was moved from 
foster home to foster home, placed in unsafe situations, bullied, threatened, denied access to, you know, gender affirming healthcare, and eventually attempting suicide. So, you know, I think it's easy to kind of extrapolate this to the to policies, which is important, and data collection, which is important, whatever else, but also important to remember that the impact is on young people every single day. So it would seem that at this point, Sue, um, that there would be some greater understanding, if not movement, some greater understanding that the issues raised in this report are really serious. But if this is an ongoing, same stuff being pointed out over and over again, what's the story? What, what's it going to take to actually get some movement? Yeah, that that's a good question, Kelly, and I, I salute Jansen and the folks at GLAD for putting this report together. I have been talking to parents in the foster care system, foster parents. I've been talking to youth for years who have been complaining huh. about just this. But the challenge becomes, because of the foster care situation, the kids can't talk on the record about it. Um, the parents who are often involved in, in, um, in, in uh, the system don't want to be out criticizing the system when they're trying to stay active foster parents. There's been situations where um, a, a parent came to me and said that they felt the child had been removed from their home, a foster child, because the, the, the official didn't understand the intricacies and subtleties of a same-sex couple raising, uh, fostering a transgender youth. So. What we have here is a minority group that is unable to really speak for itself, speak up for itself because of the danger of what they think the consequences will be, as well as their inability of having standing in the situation. So, um, you know, I think people need to be aware of this and, and it's, it's an entire system. The child welfare system in the state uh, has a lot of challenges as we know, and we tend to only cover it when horrific things happen. But it, it's something that people need to pay attention to, and we need to work to get laws that protect both the children and the families in the system, as well as work to, toward an equitable and fair treatment of both. So, Grace, you work with young people all the time. When you see this report and hear about the ongoing problems, I mean, you're dealing with uh, some of the young people who no doubt have experienced some of this. Absolutely. And, and it's terrifying. You know, I echo everything that Jansen and, and Sue has, have said, because it's, we, we hear this, we've been hearing this for years from young people and from foster parents. And, and this is a systemic issue. It's not an isolated incident. It's not something that could be fixed with a quick training. You know, it, it actually needs to have a, a concerted advocacy effort to recognize that this is it's a crisis in the foster care system and young people are being harmed and 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 it's unacceptable and and there has to be an impetus you know all the way up to say that that something needs to change grace have you seen the situation get worse during covid well we've certainly heard that you know covid across the board as as uh, young people and and of course adults too have been uh, forced to be quarantined or in near quarantine situations, schooling from home, working from home, or whatever. And so it absolutely has made it worse, and especially for trans young people. Often, often their their safety has been able to be in settings, whether it's a community-based 
organization like Bagley or School GSA or in other spaces where they can be their their authentic selves and and they're not and if their home situation is not affirming or worse is actively hostile and and that's where you are and there's no escape from that absolutely we're seeing a, a sharp uptick in in depression and and behavioral and mental health challenges and 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 it's 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 absolutely made it worse. Hmm. So let me change subjects. Every now and then, somebody makes a statement that has a reverberation louder than just their particular individual statement because of who they are. Um, And I think you could say that about ultra-conservative Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who was on 60 Minutes uh, this week reversing her 2013 statements about same-sex marriage. Let's take a listen. I was wrong. Um, I was wrong. Uh, I love my sister very much. Uh, I uh, yeah, love uh, her family very much, uh, and uh, and and I was wrong. It's a it's a very personal issue, uh, and very personal for my family. I uh, believe that my dad was right, and my sister and I have had that conversation. Freedom means freedom for everybody. So, Grace, were you surprised? Well, you know, on some level, yes. I mean, certainly, uh, and I'm all, it's always with mixed feelings when somebody who, you know, is, has been, uh, you know, somebody whose politics are very conservative and who, in the course of their career, have, have actively, you know, taken part in decisions or votes or work that has been against the interests of our community. Um, but I'm, but on the other hand, that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad that she has evolved on this issue. I'm glad that she spoke up and acknowledged that she was wrong and and affirmed that. Um, I think it's representative of where the Republican Party is right now. That that uh, you know there there are a few like Liz Cheney who are trying to carve out uh, a middle ground and then a party that is you know almost entirely uh, on this extreme right. And so uh, this might be one more example of that. Um, but. Yeah, it's great that she she acknowledged that uh, that she was wrong and that she that she thinks differently about this issue now. And so the the sister she referred to uh, those early stories years ago about how they did not speak and you know didn't there was no Thanksgiving dinner together and it was really quite awkward and horrible because I think her mother also was said no you know you're you're no child of mine to the other daughter. So this is a a huge reversal for her. So were you surprised? Well, it's kind of like a Ryan Murphy limited series, the Cheney family, when it comes to their gay sister, Mary. Remember Lynn Cheney, the mom, she wrote some like Pulp Fiction books. And in those books, she had lesbian heroes, right? Actually really? had lesbian, yeah, actual les- lesbian love scenes in those books that Lynn Cheney wrote. And then Mary Cheney comes out Lynn Cheney appears on the Sunday shows and they say, your daughter declared she was a lesbian. And Lynn says, she declared no such thing. And then you've got, you know, Dick Cheney sticking up for Mary Cheney, but not sticking up enough to help us get same-sex marriage equality in the country under under Bush. And then you've got, you know, um, Liz, who, who, while she's running, you know, obviously runs to the right. I'm not really sure she really was against it or if she just was against it so she could run for office and get elected as a Republican to to Grace's point. So yes, I'm relieved that the Cheney family is united again, at least for now. And I'm suspicious as to what will happen next month. (laughs) 
Well, are we certain, Jansen, that the mother has come over? I wasn't sure about her, actually. I don't know if she came over. I do know she just had characters in her book that were lesbians. Okay. All right. <laughs> Jansen, weigh in, please. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I'm quite ready to watch that sequel to There's Something About Mary. But <laughs> I will say what I always say when somebody has a journey story, which is that that is how we've changed hearts and minds in our women's and that's how we will continue too. So I'm, you know, I think that's a powerful um, uh, evolution story. And I always ask, what are you going to do now, right? You know, saying you're sorry is not enough, right? And there's much that, you know, Liz Cheney could be doing um, to help lead. And we should not forget that there are continuing attacks to the constitutional right to marriage equality for our community. Um, it's just taken a different form. And the form that it's taken today is around the efforts to um, carve out exemptions based on religious beliefs uh, to either refuse to recognize your marriage, to refuse to serve you for anything related to weddings. Um, and that's, you know, the fight that I'd love to really see Liz Cheney also be on the right side of. Hmm. Well, now going in the complete opposite direction, not in this country, Switzerland this past week, announced a nearly two-thirds majority in a referendum to legalize marriage for same-sex couples. They apparently had the civil unions thing going on. This will become real uh, next year in July. But 64.1% of voters, Jansen, voted for in favor of same-sex marriage in Switzerland's referendum. Again, how much power does this carry beyond Switzerland? I think that every country that makes such a powerful statement in favor of marriage equality is just adds to kind of that moral legitimacy of the cause. Um, and I'll also just say, who doesn't want to have some fun do at their wedding, right? So uh, <laughs> I think that it's another place for a destination wedding for our community. <laughs> All right, Sue. Yeah, I mean, you know, your initial reaction might be, why is Switzerland so late doing this? But the reality is that Switzerland has been, when compared to other European countries, generally has been progressive when it comes to LGBTQ rights. Uh, and I think part of the delay in this is that they had um, domestic partnership and partner benefits early. And that sort of, even though it was not full equality uh, for couples, um, kind of was in that spot and holding that lane. And I think, you know, when we look at how uh, how people being exposed to LGBTQ folks changes hearts and minds to, you know, Jansen's earlier point, the fact that this was a vote and you, you don't get much better than, than 60, 64% when it comes to a nation voting for something. So uh, I think it's just a, a shining example of sort of the progress doesn't always happen as quickly as we want or in the order that we would like it to. But um, this, is, this is definitely uh, on the destination wedding list now. Grace. Well, I think about, you know, that many people like to think of, uh, you know, the, the notion of American exceptionalism, but it's an it's a important reminder that, of course, there are many countries uh, that are far more progressive than ours on LGBTQ and other progressive issues. And so, you know, yeah, to echo what, what Chanson said, you know, this adds to the the legitimacy is that there are lots of countries doing things that we're struggling to uh, implement here. And uh, not only, you know, are there no problems, but, but that, that everyone benefits. So, so I think it's great. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Grace Sterling Stoll of Bagley, Jansen Wu of GLAD, and Sue O'Connell of NECN. We're talking all things LGBTQ. Uh, something else that I think is a little bit of history and brought to today, and by the way, this is LGBTQ History Month, the veterans who were discharged for gender identity or sexual orientation will now finally get VA benefits, which means, you know, they can get pensions, they can get medical treatment and all the rights and privileges of people who have served. Jensen, your response. You know, I um, think this is a great example about how any government, particularly our federal government, can repair the harm that's been caused. So this actually wasn't a change in any policy. The Veterans Administration had had already said that if you were, you know, um, dishonorably discharged because of your gender identity or sexual orientation, that would not mean that you were not qualified for veterans benefits. But what they found was that people weren't coming forward to say, actually, this happened to me, and I would like to seek my full benefits. And so what the VA is now doing is say, we're going to reopen every single one of those cases and look and see if you are eligible for those benefits, even if you haven't, you know, spoken up. And that's what it takes. That's the type of affirmative action it takes to repair past discriminatory harm. Sue. Yeah, but some 14,000 people were discharged over this don't ask, don't tell policy uh, that Bill Clinton instituted. And, you know, many of the people discharged were people of color, Many were women, many were straight women who had complained about sexual harassment and were accused of being lesbians. Uh, many were couldn't get their HIV uh, treatment uh, through the VA because they felt, as Jansen pointed out, they were ineligible. Some were discharged over incidents that happened. And um, I understand that they're, re they're looking at those cases in order to open them up again. I mean, so yes, I'm thrilled that America is taking steps, the federal government taking steps to right this wrong. Um, but the amount of harm that the don't ask, don't tell policy uh, and the, the, the military's policy towards uh, openly LGBTQ folks has is, is really been um, a disgrace over the past, I mean, since the beginning, but the past two decades, especially. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that the veterans who deserve you know, the best that we can offer them are, are now able, I hope, to step forward and, and get it. And Grace. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to see the step forward and, and, and helping to make sure that, that LGBT folks and others are getting the, the full benefits that they're entitled to. And I know that in the increasingly polarized uh, political environment that we're in, I worry as we move forward that, that often uh, folks in the military and, and, and in schools and other settings are being used as sort of political football. And so it depends on who, you know, who's controlling Congress, who's, who's the president. And so moving forward, I just worry about how, how much as we, as we take steps forward, how are we able to make sure that these protections and benefits are not being rolled back? All right, so I'm going to uh, change the tone a little bit, maybe, um, to, to uh, some pop culture stories that are pretty interesting. One, the queen of the dark herself, uh, Elvira, this is, you know, we mostly see her. This is her moment around going into Halloween. She came out. Here's a clip from a recent interview with Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira. 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, people call it coming out, and I guess in a way it is. I haven't ever been gay. And I, I don't feel like I'm gay. I don't know how I tell it. I guess, you know, now there's like non-binary, right, gender right. fluid, whatever. I fell in love with somebody who I met, who I really loved, and she um, was a woman. Okay, Sue, how do you feel about that clip? Uh, by the way, this was in her new book. She wrote her memoir called Yours Cruelly, Elvira. Yeah, I'll take Elvira any way she wants to come to us. I am totally open and <laughs> looking at this as the uh, the queer Halloween COVID gift that we have all been needing that, the you know, the mistress of the dark uh, has come out uh, as, I'm going to say she's queer. She can say whatever she wants. Um, but, you know, again, representing that people's sexual orientation and often with women is, is fluid and, you know, putting having to have to put ourselves in boxes sometimes doesn't always work. You know, I was more challenged for her that she had this, you know, two decade relationship with this woman who they're deeply in love and make a striking couple. And I'm waiting for them to invite me over for Halloween uh, dinner. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, felt that she had to, to hide this relationship because she was fearful of how her, you know, straight male fans would react to it because of her persona, which is, you know, if you don't know her, it's just this great, you know, sex oriented, um, uh, heterosexual sort of, although queer icon sort of mix. Um, so I feel this, this, this grief for her that she had this, has this great relationship that she felt for her job she had to keep quiet, but uh, I'll take her any way she wants to, to come out. Uh, how do you feel about it, Grace? I I love it. I love that Elvira has come out and, you know, any anyone who sort of is aware of, you know, her, <laughs> her career over the years <laughs> uh, sort of could assume there was something there, but it's so great to see that affirmed. And, and I think, yeah, there's something about this, this sort of you know, caricature character that she created that that might be stereotypically assumed to be kind of the the uh, the the wet dreams of uh, you know heterosexual teenage boys, and and here she is a lesbian and been in a long term relationship with a woman, and so yeah, I just think it's wonderful on a lot of levels for for her and and for the community. And Jansen, it was it's a nineteen year relationship she's been in with this woman. This is not like we met five years ago, even. No, I always find those stories really beautiful, honestly. Um, and, you know, I think it's complicated for celebrities, obviously, when you've been in a relationship for so long and deciding, like, how to be public about it. Um, but, I mean, I thought her story was really moving. I'll also say, you know, building on what Sue just said, Halloween is, like, the high holy holidays <laughs> for us gays. So, you know, welcome to the family of Myra. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's another pop culture a story that I was unaware of until recently. Billy Eichner has a what is being described a gay rom-com called Bros. Um, and it's uh, making history because it was picked up by a major studio, Universal Pictures. And now they've described the cast. Uh, first of all, the, the plot is that it's uh, two gay men maybe possibly, probably stumbling toward love, so says the so says materials. And the principal cast is completely LGBTQ and identifying. So we And there are names in here. We got uh, Luke McFarland, T.S. Madison, Scandal Star, Guillermo Diaz. A lot of people were shocked when they found out he was gay. Miss Lawrence, that goes back to uh, the model show with Tyra, Guy Branham, and RuPaul's Drag Race star Simone, who I love. Uh, so 
What is also interesting is that some of the actors will take on heterosexual roles, which has, of course, long been part of the history of Hollywood, where homosexual actors took on cisgender roles. So this is very interesting, Sue. What do you think? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a hallmark moment, no pun intended, that you know part of the uh, the issue of folks getting to get representation on the screen is that they haven't had the opportunities uh, to to get there, right? And and so sometimes people have had straight people have had to play these roles because uh, there weren't people who had enough experience to play them. And I think we now have enough. We've got more. We've got a bench. We've got a team, and we're ready to go. And I think it's it's really exciting. I mean, this, you know, it's sort of the point Viola Davis made when she won her Emmys. It's not that there aren't any actors. There just aren't any opportunities. And it's a big leap forward. I think um, I think it was last year, uh, Callie. We were talking about the Happiest Season, which was the yeah, uh, which the is a great movie with Kristen mm. Stewart. And you know, so it's it's great every year to see these these moves forward. I I hope I live long enough that we can just all have enough representation and have enough opportunity that we can play any role that we want without it having to be our identity. And, and that to me will be like a great equality moment because I want actors to act. I want them to act like they're not and act like they could be. But again, it's all about making sure these are jobs, remember, where people make money and I want, want to make sure that everyone gets the opportunity. So uh, speaking of Happiest Season, that's a Christmas movie, which has now become classic. So that's already in rotation in anticipating early Christmas. <laughs> um, but Hallmark, speaking of Hallmark, had some also same-sex relationship Christmassy movies. Not as good as uh, The Happiest Season. But they were, you know, that was that's a step for them. So this is from Hallmark even a year ago to this is a giant leap, Grace. Yes, there's so many ways that, you know, pop culture and, and, and film and television and other forms of media can both be ahead of the curve and follow the curve. But in, in many ways, they're, they're representing the reality of all of our lives. And so this is, you know, another example that both represents the, the, that experience, but also helps to move things forward. And so uh, if, I think in, in many ways, we're seeing that in pop culture, that that's going faster in, in a time of this sort of political reaction and attacks and, and setbacks, the, the, the media representation and public figures and folks coming out and, and, and what, we're, what we're seeing uh, in, in pop culture is, is moving forward. And just say, but you know, the reality is we're here, and we've always been here, and we're still here, and 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 there's not you can't you can't change that. So I, I think this is great. Um, one of the things that Billy Eichner said, Jansen, was he's excited about this. Um, and again, this is a rom-com called Bros, is that uh, we could go beyond, he said, uh, as actors, beyond the wacky sidekick, the token queer, or a straight movie star's gay best friend, which if you think about it, those are the roles that we can, you know, in a lot of mainstream movies where we have seen um, actors who are gay. So I'll let you weigh in on uh, and whether this how this is a giant advance or not. If how you see it, I mean, I think that's right, but it's also great that our plot line can go beyond like some tragic murder or hate crime or some traumatic coming out story. Like this is just a happy story about love. And honestly, as Grace was saying, if 
this reflects the reality of our lives. And I would like my reality of my life to be dating Luke McFarland, to be honest. So, um, but I, I will say also that my husband's favorite movies are rom-coms. So you know what we'll be doing for date night. <laughs> oh, I love rom-coms. Um, that's, that, you know, I'm all about the rom-coms. So I understand that totally. Um, I really want to end on an up note. So I'll just put this out here for, just for a quick response for all of you. And I think it's pretty interesting. And that is that police departments across the U.S. are mandating LGBTQ training. Some of it's been going on in some form uh, before, but now these are, you know, very intense um, training programs and certainly in some large cities. And it appears that it's appreciated that the, the police departments are not resistant to it. California was the first state to introduce mandatory training, but the others are moving forward. Jansen. I'm always happy to see um, institutions, particularly institutions that have not particularly been historically um, affirming of LGBTQ folks to make a step in the right direction. Um, I would also say that I think our larger goal should be to decrease the interactions that LGBTQ people, particularly LGBTQ people of color, have with police, period. And one way that we can do that here in Massachusetts, GLAD, along with many other organizations, are supporting a bill that would decriminalize sex work, which is often used by police departments to target transgender women and transgender women of color. And so my ultimate goal is to reduce the number of interactions that our communities has to have with police departments. Um, Grace. Yes, I would agree with Jansen. You know, it's it's a step forward. Certainly, it's important that that uh, you know all police officers, law enforcement officers, have the training around LGBTQ and race and and gender and all the other issues that that represent the the community that we are. Uh, and and it's only a step. That the larger issue needs to be looking at the systemic changes that need to happen, um, because of course all the training in the world you know can only do so much when the institution itself is set up in a way that that is that, that actively harms members of our own community sue last word yeah you know um obviously boston police department uh, not perfect but as we work towards reform this is one of the first police departments that had an lgbtq liaison position uh the late norman hill uh served in that position for many years they did recruitment um, directly to the, the, the gay population in Boston to join the force and work very hard uh, when uh, gay folks were victims of crime, especially crimes where they were targeted through, tar uh, through Tinder or through dating apps uh, or through fraud to you know, work with us at Bay Windows to help get the word out. You know, it's, it's a way to help reduce crime and help victims feel comfortable to come forward with their stories. So uh, it's, it's definitely got to be part of the police reform conversation as we move forward. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And I thank all of you for joining me. Thanks, thank Kelly. you so much for having us. Thank you. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Jansen Wu is the executive director of GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders are glad. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator at New England Cable News and a co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, when Black Panther, with its nearly all-black cast and black director, became a global box office hit, it capped a century of films that often did not reflect positive portrayals of African-Americans. Author Will Haygood has detailed the circuitous, often painful journey of black Americans in film in his new book, 
Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. It's our October selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.